Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Carry On With Carrie podcast. Today, it's such a pleasure to have Dr. Michelle Emerling, registered psychologist with us. Um, she is uh, the co-founder of the Alberta Wellness Center for Eating Disorders, or OSID. <laughs> I love that. Michelle holds a deep passion for the work and has been working in the field of eating disorder recovery and emotion-focused therapy for the last um, 10 years or so. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for being here. It's I Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you here. really excited and as we were just mentioning earlier this is a great time of year too mm -hmm. yeah. yeah of course and to you know that's kind of even where I wanted to get started um heading into the Christmas season um dealing with eating disorders and and you know how important it is to have the support and um the backing of your family and friends and absolutely yeah yeah it's a really challenging time of year to be struggling with an eating disorder or any mental health issue. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that that greatly impacts not only the individual that's struggling, but also the entire family. And so with things coming up, like holidays where there's going to be a lot of different types of foods, sometimes really threatening foods for people who are struggling, um, a lot of people around that can cause a lot of overwhelm. So knowing how to support your loved one during the holiday season can be really, really important because it can just be overwhelming for everyone involved in how we navigate that and get through it. Right, absolutely. Okay, so kind of we'll backtrack sure. and get a little yeah. bit of history about where you got started and what kind of led you into this this end of psychology in this field. Absolutely. Um, I've had a passion for eating disorders for a very, very long time. Um, it's something actually that I personally struggled with growing up. Okay. Um, so that got my interest because there wasn't a lot of understanding when I was going through it. So it's something I really, really wanted to know how to help support again, not only the individuals, but people around them. Because I think there was a very helpless feeling. So I ended up um, studying it at the University of Alberta and oh, wow. doing my master's and PhD on the topic. Yeah. Um, and then just knew from there that I wanted to go into private practice and be able to, again, continue to be a different form of support because Alberta was so limited um, in what was being offered. We do have two inpatient treatment programs at, at the hospitals, mm. but outside of that, it's just, um, there was kind of just individual support. So knowing that I wanted to be able to bring something different um, to the field of eating disorder work. So I ended up actually doing a lot of my training out in Ontario and bringing out a new model for working with eating disorders called emotion-focused family therapy. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I started wanting to work with families and eating disorders. Yeah, that's amazing too. I um, and so you mentioned you're with you, you work in with the university now or sorry, with different hospitals now? Um, we have a collaborative relationship with the University of Alberta Hospital. Okay. Um, basically what happens sometimes is we will have clients that contact us that are just in a place of needing like medical support and, and kind of starting that whole process of whether it's um, kind of doing some nutritional rehabilitation, or just they're at a place medically where they just need further stabilization. So sometimes we have clients start there, mm -hmm. um, but we have a kind of back and forth relationship in terms of the fact that also when people leave the program and they're needing more support, we're also there to be that transition. Right. Um, so our center is really trying to cover all different angles of the, the support and recovery process. Right. Um, and I think one of the biggest things we like to offer is um, just because some of the public health systems just don't have enough capacity to mm -hmm. support everybody. We, no matter what, want to support the family during the entire journey, even while their child is 
for example, maybe inpatient at the hospital. Right, because that's really one of the hugest parts, the involvement of the family. Absolutely. In the, in the um, healing. It is. We yeah. actually believe, and this comes from the EFFT model, the emotion focused family therapy model. Um, we believe families are actually the key to healing. Okay. Um, because they are, they hold everything that the child needs, mm -hmm. um, and they just don't always know how right. to communicate that or bring that forward. Yeah, for sure. So um, the Alberta Wellness Centre brought the model out from Ontario. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have anything like that out here. We were doing very individualistic kind of models for working with eating disorders, and I was doing that originally in my private practice before we started the centre, and just really finding that there's only so far you can go in recovery. Mm -hmm. Because individuals go back home to their families right. and families need to know what to do. They're helpless. They feel hopeless, defeated. So the model is a way of empowering parents to increase their self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. And there's tons of research to support that when we do that, the recovery process, like the outcomes are significant after the parents have the support. Right. And then they have the, they have the skills to give the proper support to the person um, struggling with it. Absolutely. And words and everything. Like, how do you, you know... How do you, if you notice that it's starting again or there's a different cycle, how do you address that That's exactly. as a family member? Yeah, and it's it's such a natural, like as a parent myself, I totally understand that when your child is hurting, suffering, struggling, not eating mm -hmm. or binging, let's say, that you want to do everything in your power to make that stop. But right. then we often operate out of a place of fear or overwhelm or just helplessness. And then we usually end up saying things that maybe aren't the most helpful, mm -hmm. but thinking they're, they're unintentional. They're meant to be helpful. So what we try to do is get parents to understand how to talk in a way that helps their child feel heard and understood mm -hmm. so that then they can set the boundaries um, help with symptom interruption, help with refeeding, whatever's needed, but they have to be able to talk to the child in a way that they feel heard and understand first. Right, because I, my understanding too is it can be, um, if you've had any trauma or or any things, triggers throughout like the early stages of it, especially with teens, can you explain a little bit about how that evolves with teens? Absolutely, like how the eating disorders. Yeah, first. and what trauma, like how trauma kind of relates to eating disorders. Absolutely. Um, eating disorders are so multifaceted, so there can actually be so many things that lead to the development of one. And sometimes it can be our big T traumas, so things that we consider, um, whether that's abuse, neglect, things like that. Um, but a lot of times it's actually what we consider more little T traumas, so just things that have happened that have overwhelmed the system and people don't know how to cope with it. Um, so for a lot of teens, we find that they're looking for a way to deal with a lot of emotion that they don't know what to deal with. And so sometimes it can be self-hatred feelings inside. It can just be anger, sadness. So what we want to be able to do is help them understand that they're using the eating disorder as almost a life raft to mm -hmm. deal with those overwhelming emotions. Right. And most of them accidentally fall into it. They don't even intend to. Um, but then we have a culture that socially reinforces things like weight loss. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very easy thing for that whole snowball to start to go. Right. And it's with like, would you say that, I mean, definitely, I would say that it, there's an increase in, in eating disorders within since social media has kind of taken over. And, and how do you, you know, how can you filter them from that kind of thing? Absolutely. I mean, social media definitely is one of the significant factors that can lead to that. Um, one of the things that's so important in terms of prevention is being able to talk to especially teens or I would say even preteens about what they're seeing, especially online, um, and doing some of that like understanding of how those photos are doctored, like 
just of the diet culture itself in general. And mm -hmm. we tend to shy away from that, um, but really openly talking about the impact that these types of images that are being completely doctored um, have and, and how it's impacting how people feel about themselves and their bodies. Right. Um, and then your peers and, and all of that in school, it can also play, like you said, tiny, the, the small T traumas. Yes, yes. Um, I would think even just one passing comment you know, somebody Absolutely. makes a comment and it could, that's the comment that could stick. I work with a lot of individuals who, I mean, there's lots, sometimes building under the surface, mm -hmm. sometimes for people, but it can also just be going about your daily life, thinking things are fine. And then somebody, again, unintentionally, because I don't believe people are trying to be harmful, says a comment like, oh my goodness, you're so fat, thunder thighs, something like that. And it's like, it just jars the entire system. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we call it like a, a trauma because the system just goes, oh my goodness, like there's something wrong with me. Right. And I thought I was okay. Mm -hmm. And then we develop this part that wants to protect us from ever being um, shamed again, made fun of. And so it tries to, to prevent that by creating this buffer and usually through something like weight loss or control. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I mean, with family as well, I know I'm from the generation of finish your meal and yep. you have to, you know, you can't leave the table until everything's finished. And um, of course, that's just all they knew at the time. So it's, it's nothing. But how has that kind of language changed around eating, Absolutely. At, around meals, around that whole well, I would say it's it's changing slowly. <laughs> slowly still, you'll still see it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it is shifting, I mm -hmm. think, as people understand this, but there's still so many people. And again, it's it's so unintentional. They come from a family where that was the case. Like a lot of people came from families that, you know, grew up in the depression times or were times when food was scarce, mm -hmm. right? And so finish your plate was just a part of the way we talked about things. Right. Um, and so if we're raised that way, <clears throat> we then unintentionally pass that on to our children. Um, but I think people as things like intuitive eating are coming in and being more mindful while we eat, mm -hmm. some people are starting to take the approach of like, I think we can let people self-regulate around food. Right. Yeah. Okay. Intuitive eating. That's interesting. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So um, the idea behind intuitive eating is that instead of following our very ingrained diet culture rules, which all of us have inside of us. Um, it's a way to listen to your, um, we call it like interceptive awareness, but your body-based cues. So okay. your hunger signals, even paying attention to things about what types of flavors or what types of sensations or tastes do I want to have mm -hmm. and trying to feed your body in that way. So it's paying less attention to like, maybe like time structures, like you should eat at this time um, or those rules that we have and instead yeah. trying to listen to the, the internal cues. Right. Yeah. And snack when you're hungry, that kind yes. of thing. Right. Absolutely. And okay. So <clears throat> taking somebody in, say a parent is, you know, they're lost and they have, they don't know where to turn. Um, what are the first steps that you can recommend to a family member or caregiver to someone that's suffering with this? Absolutely. <clears throat> the first thing I want to say is that you are not alone. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing because it's such it can be such a lonely journey or scary journey. Um, first of all, if you can find ways to talk to your kids about what's going on, even just asking if they're okay. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, it's reaching out for support because you don't have to be their therapist. You don't have to have the answers. There's people for that. Um, but once you have an understanding like, oh, I think there's something going on here. And again, I wouldn't even hesitate if you're kind of questioning it. Okay. I think there could be something there. So let's let's find out before mm -hmm. it's too late. And the earlier we catch it, the better. And we have things like 
if we're in a stage where we can help support you, like we have the center where you can reach out to us. Mm -hmm. um, you don't need any type of referral. We just okay. we can just call right into um, our office. We have an amazing office manager named Carrie who would be happy to take your call mm -hmm. and she'll walk you through every step okay. um, of all the supports we provide at the center. And we have everything from dietary support with our dietitians to we have an RN that works with us. Um, we have an OT and we have a bunch of psychologists mm -hmm. um, and we have a bunch of groups and we have family support and individual support. So okay. we're really a wraparound service all in one, mm -hmm. one location. And how important would you say it is to get the right direction? And because, I mean, mm -hmm. let's be real, it could be one of those things that somebody doesn't know how to deal with it and doesn't use the right techniques and yep. styles to get, you know, in a healthy way. Yeah, I think you're bringing up a really good point. Unfortunately, there. I believe that eating disorder treatment is a specialized form of treatment Absolutely, um, and it does take a really good knowledge and expertise and understanding. So I do think reaching out to the, to people who are experts in the field, who have the training and that's not just psychologists. I mean, dietitians, unfortunately don't get a lot of training in that either. Right. Um, so getting dietitians who have, it's, it's actually separate training that they do. So hmm. getting dietitians who know how to work with eating disorders um, and even, even the medical system, like, Again, it's not it's not done intentionally, but there's a lot of medical practitioners that don't understand or see it as just a phase that mm -hmm. someone's going to go through. So, knowing that you're if you feel something wrong inside your gut as a parent, I always tell people, don't don't let other people talk you out of it. Trust your yeah. gut and follow through and reach out. Very important. Absolutely. Um, with anything like, you know, you learn over the years because you, you, you'll you can remember back to things. Why didn't I go with that? Why didn't I trust yes. myself? And it, it really is so true. Um, now, so coming into the clinic, is there ever, um, like, is there a program where they may need to go into housing or in, like separated from family altogether? Do you guys provide something? So our center doesn't specifically, okay. but the uh, hospital program at the U of A, at the U of A hospital, um, they actually have several different um, types of treatment there. So you can okay. be an inpatient or you have to stay on the hospital unit. They also have the Aberhart Center, which is an outpatient live-in facility. Okay. And then you can also be an outpatient there where you're coming in for certain meals, but going home or going back to school. It just depends on the level of care that's required. Mm -hmm. um, we we have a meal support program in Calgary where we offer meal support within oh. the home. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're looking at offering more of that also in the city, but we're more of the the transition to supporting you so you can help support your child within your home. So um, I know we talked about the holidays, um, but can you give some advice to family and friends that can just little snippets of things that can actually aid them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the biggest thing is the holidays are going to be, they're already overwhelming for everybody. So mm -hmm. just addressing that, it's like, we're all going to be overwhelmed. So when we're struggling with somebody with an eating disorder, how are we then going to help them already in the overwhelm of that? Mm -hmm. um, so lots of things around talking with them in a very collaborative way about what's going to help you feel safe during this time. Right. So if you need to have some of those safe foods, if you need to like have ways that they can have breaks, you know, where they can get away from food or meal times just to kind of you know, maybe practice some mindfulness or take some breathing or get distraction. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's really starting the open conversation to say, okay, I know this is going to be a hard time for you. It's so overwhelming. What can we do to help you feel more safe to navigate this? Mm -hmm. It's really not a time to be challenging a bunch of things or right. <laughs> facing a bunch of things or getting upset if the individual isn't participating, maybe in a way that you know, ideally we'd like them to participate in those times. Right. And let them have their breaks if they yes. need to walk away for a bit and have their own time and space. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Because we, if you can imagine sitting at a dinner table, they have an internal voice that we often call the brain boss or a self-critic mm-hmm. or eating disorder voice sometimes that's saying things to them like, don't eat this. That's disgusting. It's going to, you're going to get fat. It, and so it's this constant kind of voice that's talking. Mm-hmm. So they might not be able to engage in the way that everyone else is at the table because they're struggling with that. So yeah. it's just kind of acknowledging when they might be overwhelmed, giving them permission to have those breaks, saying really nice validating things like it looks like you're really overwhelmed. Do you need anything right now? Yeah. Um, and so is there, okay. Um, triggers, what are uh, triggers? Isn't the right word signs, um, as a parent or a caregiver, what are some of the signs to look for? What are some things that, you know, are red flags that are, are popping up for them? That's a fantastic question. Um, it depends on the type of eating disorder. Um, but I would say kind of in general, um, anytime you start to notice an I'm going to say sort of like an obsession with food can be one thing to look for. So when people are really hyper fixated on that in different ways, um, so it can show up like in terms of suddenly wanting to know, you know, what's going in everything, or they suddenly want to come shopping with you, or they're really like hanging around the kitchen a lot in a way that feels very different from how they've right. been. Calorie counting. Yep. Um, things like starting to restrict food groups is another big one that we mm-hmm. start to notice. They start to like slowly start to cut things out. Okay. Um, if you're struggling with something more like bulimia, mm-hmm. we're starting to look for things like, are they leaving the table and disappearing into the bathroom? Mm-hmm. You hear the shower running or something like that all of a sudden. Um, people who don't want to join for meals anymore um, and don't want to be around mealtime. Right. Well, kind of be in the room or locked away. Um, you can also start to look for some physical cues, like I mean, just in terms of how the body looks. We can't always tell that, but that is another thing to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think just withdrawal in general. Like if you notice your child's not hanging out with their friends anymore, doesn't want to, because really it's a withdrawal from food. Right. Because we, we do everything around food, especially like teenagers, young adults, right? They're mm-hmm. often getting together to go out to eat or to a movie where there's food. So that you'll start to notice that they're pulling farther, farther away. Right. So that brings up kind of an interesting point because a lot of m- different mental illnesses, um, you wind up isolating. You do kind of go away from socializing and all that stuff. Is Now, would you put eating disorders in that category as a mental disorder? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it is in the DSM-5. So okay. it is listed. So eating disorders are broken into several categories. So there's anorexia uh, nervosa, there's bulimia nervosa, there's binge eating disorder, which a lot of people don't actually know is a diagnosable eating disorder. And what does that, like, is it when you're just, you just eat? So it's, it's when people are eating in a way that feels um, out of control for them okay. or dissociating while they're doing it in some form. And they're eating to a point that they feel very uncomfortably, if not overwhelmingly full, or, mm-hmm. but it can also just be out of control eating. Like, right. in a, way. Um, a lot of people, I think in our society, unfortunately get labeled as, you know, in that kind of category of being obese or just out of control. So it's often seen as more of a shame when people present themselves. And then we tell them this is actually an eating disorder that right. you're struggling with. Yeah. Um, we also have ARFID, which is um, when we almost develop an ability, like it's a the way we react towards different foods, sensations, things like that. So it's not a body image based thing. It's more of, I get so overwhelmed and anxious when certain types of foods are around, I can't eat them. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also in that category also have like selective type eating um, and feeding disorders that also fit. Right. Wow. How do eating disorders present differently between men and women? Great question. Um, So we often find, I think with women, I mean, both anyone who's struggling with an eating disorder, 
it can present, you can have anorexia, bulimia, you can have binge eating. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not gender specific okay. in any way, shape or form. Um, <clears throat> one thing we do notice though, and I think it's just more based on stereotypes around eating disorders is women, I think just in our society at the moment, feel more comfortable bringing it forward. And still, it's an incredibly shameful thing and highly stigmatized. So still very hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things though, I think maybe that um, is showing up a little bit more is when women are struggling with anorexia, they tend to look a certain body type, I think. Men, I think, can also look that way, absolutely, but it can also be, um, sometimes the, the term we use is, it's not, a, it's not a term we use like in terms of diagnosis or anything like that, but they call it like the Adonis complex. So it's the idea okay. that they're in a very, very almost like um, fit body, but in a way that's very unhealthy. So it's like, okay. no, like almost 0% body fat, things like that. So a very, very mm -hmm. slender type build. Um, but in terms of like what it looks like on the outside, we'll never know what type of eating disorder anyone's struggling with. Right, right. Because people can be in a larger body and still have anorexia, right? Okay. Which is, again, a misconception that oh, a lot okay. of people hold. Um, I think the problem, though, is that men in particular, because of the amount of shame already surrounding eating disorders, um, men are a lot less likely to come forward and talk about their eating disorder. Right. I actually believe there's way more men out there that are struggling than actually are coming forward. Mm -hmm. um, and when men do come forward, we find that anorexia can definitely be part of it, right. um, but a lot of men struggling with um, either binge eating or bulimia also. Okay, wow. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, total misconception because you just don't think of it on that side of things. So is it something, you know, that that's, there's a fine line, like you said, you don't know, like some males, you know, they grow up and they're just, they're, they've got that athletic build, yeah. they are naturally thin. Um, what are, are there different signs? to look for or is it very similar I, yeah it's, it's yeah. across the board really okay similar yeah mm -hmm. and i think the harder part when men are struggling is because and, and this is this is a generalization because it can be this way but i think it's the the tendency then to want to hide that i think it's even going to be harder so i think it would be in some ways harder to detect somebody right. was struggling because women I, i'm hesitant to say this but it does feel a bit more comfortable to talk about eating disorders i think amongst your other female friends mm -hmm. um, but for men to bring that forward I, I mean, already talking about emotions, you know, mental health vulnerabilities can be incredibly hard. And right. that's based on our culture and socialization, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when they come to you, a male comes to you, do you find even just their, their, the timing and how long it takes for them to open up to yes. you and start kind of getting that process going? Is it a little bit it, it can or it can be but usually when somebody's coming to the center because we're labeled an eating disorder center they feel quite ready to start okay. talking about it mm -hmm. um one thing we have noticed is parents actually identifying it in their male children um and bringing their children in a lot oh. sooner too which is is really really nice though when your parents are bringing you in you're less likely to want to talk about it in yes some yeah. kids not everybody yeah though. you yeah. want to resist whatever they're saying or just, yeah and that's where the language as a parent is so important Absolutely. so you're not you know you should do this because oftentimes I'll, like my kids would be asking me well do you like this pair of jeans on me mm -hmm. and if i did i'd say no 
<laughs> because if I said yes, they wouldn't want those ones. <laughs> Reverse psychology. Right. And I don't know if that's that's healthy or not, but, you know. It's so hard to know what to say. And I think one of the biggest things as parents is we feel like we have to know the answers to mm -hmm. questions like that. And it's a bit like, oh, I'm tiptoeing. Like, what, what do I say? And then yeah. we can get overwhelmed, right? Right. And then that's our own stuff coming up. I really find when kids ask questions like that, um, it's putting it back on them. Like, how mm -hmm. do you feel in them? Like, you know, are, does it feel like it's like, I can tell maybe you're feeling a little anxious about it. Maybe this is a new style of clothes you don't normally wear, but yeah. how are you doing with it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's, again, the, uh, probably the unhealthy way that I did it at some point, yeah. but I... <laughs> we all do it. Yeah, we do. And it's those things, though, that things like talking about it like this is so important because everything evolves, everything changes. And, you know, you can only just from learning and, and hearing somebody else's perspective on these things. Um, so is there a lot of support is it a supportive community? Like when you go in, do you have um, different groups? Like you mentioned, you have groups, but is it something where the, the parents can kind of keep in touch with each other and have their own kind of support group through that? So there's lots of different ways to get support. So we run um, parent and caregiver groups okay. specifically where they can be with other parents and caregivers. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're teaching them the skills that we use in the EFST or EFFT model. Um, so we're teaching them validation, emotion coaching, how to hold boundaries, but a lot of it is having them reflect on how their own emotional stuff comes forward. And we create a really safe space because all these parents are feeling like, I always say that they look like shells of who they are. Like when they go through this process and I get to see who they were before all of this, it's mm -hmm. like, suddenly life comes back into everyone involved. Right. Um, so just knowing that other people are going through this and having other parents, and I mean, if they want to connect outside the group, they form those relationships. Um, but there's lots of support around like talking with other parents, finding the right, you know, what have you tried? What's worked for you? And, but I think more than anything, just to be like, wow, this is so hard. Mm -hmm. I had even a parent say to me the other day, just how isolating it is because they're sitting at, you know, an event with other parents who are talking about how their kids are doing and how amazing school's going and, you know, their daughter's in the eating disorder program. Right. right. So having other people who understand that mm -hmm. and how hard it is that as much as you want to celebrate with other parents around you whose kids are, you know, not in this place, mm -hmm. um, but also how hard it is to hear that and right. to mourn and grieve like where you Absolutely. are. Yeah. And like, yeah, I guess, again, it's something you don't think about is the social aspects. Like if you've got... You know, in school, you've got um, a Christmas dinner or yeah. just anything like there's there's so many different events that are everything's surrounded by food. Absolutely. Everything. We, everything. We celebrate. We have traditions like food is. And that's actually when people come to me and they'll say something like I've had I've had an addiction before. Mm -hmm. or I've struggled with um, anything in the past where it's like I've overcome that. So let's say it's a drug or an alcohol addiction. And they're like, but I can't stop my quote unquote addiction to food. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we bring forward is well, that's because food is everywhere. We can't quit food. No, right? it's part of our everyday lives. It's part of everything we do, holidays, traditions, cultures. So in social settings, it does present itself in every holiday. There's food, there's, um, yeah, it's snacks everywhere. Yeah, there's an abundance of food all the mm -hmm. time, right? Just walking to a grocery store is a perfect example, yeah. every flavor type. So um, one thing we find people really struggle with is I have so many people come in in so much shame because they said I've battled like 
so many other things in my life, right? And I've overcome addictions and I've overcome gambling and I've overcome shopping addictions, things like that. Um, and they're like, I can't stop this though. Mm -hmm. And so one thing we really like to bring forward is first of all, um, trying to reduce that shame by, by holding space for the fact that we can't quit food. Like you can quit, let's say, for example, if you're trying to stop you know, if you're struggling with alcoholism, you can just not go around alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's not that simple, but yeah, that understanding. But food is, is part of our everyday lives. It's part of, like we said, like our holidays, our celebrations. So when you're constantly facing your triggers all the time, mm -hmm. um, you have to find a way to keep riding out those, like all the overwhelm, all the urges that might be coming in and still get through the event you're at. And that's happening multiple times a day. Right, yeah, you you hold a great point. I actually, I'm two years sober now and I'm pretty proud of that, but yeah, I can choose, You. that's a good point. You can choose to not go to the party. You can choose to not go to, you know, something that you feel might trigger you or, you know, what, like I'm not going to perish or be unhealthy if I right. don't drink, Right. right? Yes. Yeah. So completely different. It is. It's got so much of the same like underpinnings that we would still target. I would still treat them very similar, mm -hmm. except for the fact that we have to find a way to manage all of that overwhelm all the time yeah. from basically the start of your day to the end of your day. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's exhausting. It is. I can't imagine. Some of the factors that contribute to the onset of an eating disorder, um, restriction, um, what does restriction look like? binge eating and purging like can you give us an like kind of a definition or a explanation of why we why we do those things absolutely so um just as a little bit of context behind what an eating disorder like how we develop one yeah there's just so many factors it's really not simplistic it's everything as we talked about already from like our media our culture but it's also people's um certain personality types that come forward it's our genetics um it can be um social cultural influences like there's just so many different things that lead to that mm -hmm. and then what ends up happening is we don't know how to cope with what's going on and right. it's what's going on underneath like inside of us and so again i call it a life raft because it's like we turn to these different um symptoms or behaviors you're talking about as a way to find um just to cope like and they're maladaptive coping but at the time they don't feel that way they right. feel very and so something like restriction i talk about is a way for somebody to if you're in your head all the time thinking about you know how many calories are in this i shouldn't be eating this you're gross you're disgusting you're and you're constantly kind of having that tape play over and over again mm -hmm. you have no space to feel to think about anything else it's mm -hmm. just occupying everything so in a lot of ways it helps us numb everything else that's going on mm -hmm. so restriction becomes a way almost for some people to have control but also as like a numbing agent mm -hmm. um and so restriction looks like when we're reducing um the amount of intake or variety of intake in a way that is significantly impacting our either well-being or health right um if we look at purging purging is where we're actually like throwing something up right like, so vomiting um it can also be different things like over laxative use things like that yeah um and also over exercise can be in that category and we find that's often a way for people to get release and it's not just a release from the food it's mm -hmm. a release from the emotion so mm -hmm. they're purging everything out um and then um sorry the other one was binging right is that yeah, binge yeah. Eating. so binge eating is often a way to comfort or soothe um, also a way to numb and it depends on what what the use is but it's a way that if I'm feeling so overwhelmed I'm exhausted I'm angry I can turn to food and I get that instant feeling of just like pleasure satisfaction or it takes me in, away from everything mm -hmm. and I'm just mindlessly eating and then I don't have to think about anything that's happening around me right and um, so okay looking into that even exercise 
Yes. Right. So yeah. if you you see your loved one, you know, just with all of those factors and adding the exercise onto it. Absolutely. And we deem it over exercise because sometimes people there say, well, it's healthy to move your body. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it's when people are rigidly stuck in a need to work out if they're injured, if they're tired or they're doing it a specific amount or a specific intensity and they can't, they almost become like obsessive with it. They're mm -hmm. so rigid in how they do it. Mm -hmm. um, again, there's variations in that, but anytime you see somebody getting into that obsessive quality, it's definitely another sign or symptom. Right. So now for women, would you say like, is, is there a common, um, like, is there certain times in your life that you notice it kind of presenting itself mm -hmm. like through different trauma? Like I know that's through different traumas, but teenage years, and then maybe again after children or, you know, into different hormonal levels, does it change? Have you noticed anything like that? It can. Um, it's, it's so individual in so many ways. It's okay. I'll try to speak in a little bit of generality, but um, usually like a preteen time can be a really vulnerable time as especially for, for girls because their bodies are going through so many changes mm -hmm. and yes, hormonal level, but physical changes. Um, and if you're going through puberty before other people go through, it's another really hard time. Or if you are extremely tall or you stand out in some way, mm -hmm. um, we find that that's a really vulnerable time. Pregnancy, going through pregnancy, both pre and postpartum can be a really hard time also with changes in body happening. Um, and then later, I'm going to say a little bit later in life, um, if you're going through, again, big emotional changes, mm -hmm. right? It could be happening like your children moving out of the house, maybe job shifts or changes, divorce, things like that happening in your life. They can be another prime kind of vulnerability time. Or if your body's changing also with like, say like perimenopause or menopause. Right. Right. Yeah. Because it's, a, it just affects like your hormone levels are changing. Everything's like you're even what you want to eat. And um, is there a, a particular food that you find is like sugar? It's kind of, what do they say? It's kind of like cocaine. <laughs> it's very addictive. It, it can be. Yeah. And I, I think what's interesting about things like certain foods or certain food types that we talk about sugar as an example, I think it's more what the diet culture has built yeah. around these foods. So um, actually our OT and me talked recently about how we actually eat with our eyes. And so I think quite often it's we see something and we associate it to a feeling that inside or a connection. Right. Um, and things like so let's say things with sugar that have, you know, certain kinds of like fat contents or tastes, like really intense tastes. I think we're drawn to them because they create a really pleasurable sensation. Mm -hmm. And we then associate that with a feeling inside. Mm -hmm. And so once we have that connection made, I think that's when we talk about, you know, an addiction in quotations is when we're really drawn to something. Yeah. And again, it's not so much the food. It's just the, the feeling I get from having that food. And I know that I can then connect it to all the times I felt that way. Mm -hmm. So it's all your, um, your, pleasure centers basically yeah. it's yeah. the same as any other it's not an addiction per se but it can be kind of classified well the way i kind of look at anything is that when we're drawn to that it's just our coping strategy and okay. we, if we know it works which eating disorders quote unquote work they mm -hmm. do um we're going to keep going back to the thing we know that works like yeah. it's crazy to think like why would we go do something else if i know i can just open this bag of whatever it is, eat it. And then I'm going to get that feeling instantly. Right. So I can feel horrible about myself or I can just go and open this thing and have an instant, I guess, quote unquote, hit of something. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's usually a hit of feeling, right. That's yeah. going to take me out of that. So then we just get caught up in that cycle of wanting to get that release, which then triggers shame, of course, which then pulls us back into wanting to get out and right. we just keep repeating that cycle. 
Um, and guilt and shame plays a huge role in so many things like that. And it's, yeah, how do you um, kind of, what are some of the coping mechanisms you you provide for that? Like, because I would assume that's probably something that you want to kind of touch on Absolutely. fairly quick. Yes. Guilt and shame are two of our biggest emotional targets that we look at. Um, just because when people come in, I mean, the amount of shame around an eating disorder is already pretty deep. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, our culture is adding to that in different ways, making, you know, stereotypes and judgments about people who are struggling. Um, so what we do is we really help people first become aware that that's even there, that mm -hmm. they're struggling with um, guilt and shame. Um, and then shame in particular, because the difference is with guilt, I, you know, I did something bad is guilt, I am bad is shame. So we're really wanting to help people understand that difference and then target ways to start to, and we do this through lots of different techniques in our office, but really trying to help people move through that. Mm -hmm. um, some of that psychoeducation around how our diet culture, how people in our lives have made us feel that way and how it's really not our story, our narrative, it's coming from outside, but then we internalize it. Mm -hmm. um, what we're trying to get people to do is with emotion focused therapy, we're getting them to move through emotion to another emotion. So in that case, shame is a maladaptive emotion. Okay. And we want people to come out into something more adaptive. So a healthy adaptive anger to be like, hey, when I was young and you told me I couldn't eat that over and over again, or you were commenting on my body, that actually wasn't okay. Right. So instead of holding there's something wrong with me, now it's, I'm angry you did that to me. Mm -hmm. And then it helps people be able to move through things and not just get drowned in the in the shame they're experiencing. Right. Yeah, because it is often that's what it starts with is just the outward stuff that comes in, right? Yeah. Um, and, okay, so when we've all seen someone that either is, you know, um, extremely thin Mm -hmm. um, it, and, you know, you, you come to conclusions and you're like worried about them. And, um, but you know, what effects and do, do people suffering talk about the looks they get or, mm -hmm. or how, yeah, how did, how do you cope with that? Because if you are in that place, you can't change it overnight. Right. Absolutely. But how do you deal with that while you're in it? Absolutely. And are we talking specifically about anorexia? Yeah, anorexia yeah. or even in the other end of things, okay. you yeah. know? Absolutely. I <laughs> I get very I have a very strong emotional reaction when this happens because so many people, I would say almost everyone I work with, has people making comments on about their body on their body. I mean, definitely if you're in a larger body, mm -hmm. the amount of open shaming that happens is alarming. Still. Still. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And I think it's people's fear that mm -hmm. drives them to say things like that. But it's horrible because then those impacts on people. Um, the unfortunate part is that we can't, we don't have control over those things. I mean, we're hoping society is changing. Um, I'm really trying to empower people that, you know, educating people that people's bodies and even what they eat is nobody's business. You mm -hmm. do not have a right to comment on that in anybody. Yeah. Um, but when that's happening, it's how we protect. Um, so the only thing we have control over is our own incoming and outgoing boundaries. So in that case, I'm helping empower people how we tighten up that incoming boundary. So when those things come at you, mm -hmm. what are you going to hold? Is that going to trigger a bunch of shame inside of you? Which, of course, it's going to hit some of that. But then how do we hold something else so that we can keep going as mm -hmm. we're going through the recovery process? So finding... Um, ways to address that both inward and sometimes maybe even outward. Like what are we then, if we're opening up our outgoing boundary, what are we saying then to protect ourselves? Right. And that's important. Like what, what would a response be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the ones I have people go to is just my body is not a topic of conversation. Right. And it, and that's a, a right way. Like there's nothing, um, you're not being confrontational and you're not, you know, cause 
that can lead to even worse comments then. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that's just learning how to kind of bring people's attention to the fact that even though you maybe feel like this is an okay thing to talk about openly, mm -hmm. it's absolutely not. So just finding ways to shut that conversation down and hopefully at the same time, give people the message that they need to look at what's going on for you inside that's yeah. making you say this out loud. Yeah, it's a reflection of yourself when you have to focus on that. And I mean, again, we talked about social media and the shaming and the trolls and you know, all the stuff going on with that, it, like comments. Yes. And those don't go away unless you, well, you can delete them and whatever, but those are, they stick. Yeah. And I think, I think what people need to realize is that maybe you think you're being funny. Maybe it's a moment of, again, there's fear connected. I, I really believe people are saying those things because their own stuff that's going on inside, which it's just becoming aware of it. That's going to help. But recognizing that those comments, those things, like we were saying, they don't leave people like mm -hmm. those are the voices that then they internalize they become their own self-critics then and how many times i've heard these comments come right out in my office like one after the other and people are just drowning in like pain and shame um it's it's just one of those things that if we could at least reduce part of that in the, yeah. in the world that would go such a long way I mean, it's only a piece of eating disorders but it's right. one that i think is that we could address as a society and it's so much more a complex <laughs> issue than i think most people realize it right. is. Oh, wait. I think the problem is, is the feeling really with eating disorders still, it's, it's just the misconception is that people just need to eat mm -hmm. or stop eating. Right. It's that simple. Yeah. yeah. So what is your take on um, the kind of the new, I don't know, I want to call it a trend because dieting is like that, uh -huh. but the fasting, because uh -huh. <laughs> that's a new thing right now. Yeah. It's so healthy to fast. Now, how can that like we all know it's like a slippery slope when you start going into something like that like oh I can I can last 48 hours or I can you know is has that played a role in absolutely yeah okay the the problem with anything in the diet culture realm is that all of it we know the research supports I, I can't remember the exact number it's something like 96 percent of people who go on diets of any type or restriction of any type end up gaining more weight in the long run. Right. And the diet industry is built on that. That's why they make money. <laughs> um, so when we go into things, whether it's like fasting or any of any of the different types of, of diets that are out there, it's recognizing that you're putting yourself into a state of starvation. And when our bodies go into that state, they our bodies are meant to um, hang on to everything. Mm -hmm. Because biologically, if we only got food for a period of time in our history, we had to know we could survive till we got more food. Right. So if we keep putting our body into that state, the body is going into that state of, oh my gosh, I have to protect myself so that when we get food, the chances we then try to eat as much as we can because our body's saying we, we got to get it as much as we can while we get it. Yeah. And then because it's knowing we're going to go back into a period of restriction possibly. So yeah. it's going into those constant phases where if we can just listen to our body cues and try to just stay regulated and attuned, which is so hard mm -hmm. in our culture. Oh yeah, <laughs> it is. With all these messages coming at us all the time, that's ultimately the way. And that's what intuitive eating is trying to bring forward okay. is some version of just like, how do we just follow ourselves and not follow all these rules and ideas about what's healthy and not healthy. And, and the extreme of anything I find, yes. there's always going to be kind of an end to that. Absolutely. You can't, you can't keep that up. No. Yeah. No one can. And then of course we fall into the, the trap then of what's wrong with me that I can't. That you can't. Yeah. And for those that do continue doing it and you know, they've had all these recoveries and wonderful things happen to them because of it. Yes. And that's kind of what lures you into the idea of it. And one of the things I think that's, also 
needs to be have attention drawn to is so many people that are struggling in the eating disorder realm mm -hmm. have so many other symptoms mm -hmm. that no one's able to quote unquote treat and that's because they have an eating disorder right and everyone's trying busy trying to treat these symptoms that could be treated if we treated the eating disorder mm -hmm. but because it's so normalized in our culture it's just a diet or you know it's healthy to do this thing when really it's probably causing distress to the system yeah so from a dietitian's perspective now you brought that up i mm -hmm. do want to touch on that a bit because it often is forgotten mm -hmm. um it's something that even with mental health they've you know it, it you stop eating um in many different sides of mental health right that yeah. can be a symptom of um, and the, the diet that's important to help you with your mind and growing and all of those things. So dietary from the perspective of someone who say is overeating, yeah. how do you, how do you guide them to a different way without adding the shame? Absolutely. So our center believes in not looking at any forms of diet culture at all. Okay. So we're, uh, people do come to us um, and it's again, totally understandable given our culture looking for weight loss. Yeah. And so we're not a place that looks at like, we're going to help you lose weight. Okay. That's, that's not our, our mandate at our center at all. Um, but we do look at various forms of, let's say, harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, unfortunately, still in our culture, people do need to lose weight potentially to have a surgery or have something happen. Yeah. I can't speak from the dietary perspective myself. Our dietitians are trained in how to kind of help people navigate that piece. But what I help people do is try to figure out how to address all the things around finding ways to stop. Because really what it is, is usually people are binging or comfort eating, mm -hmm. right? So we want people just to stop the out of control behaviors that they're feeling. Yeah. Um, and, and we're there as psychologists to support them in ways to deal with those feelings, ride out those urge waves, whatever it might be, so that they don't need the food to cope. Right. And then our dietitians are there to help them figure out how are we going to do this in a way that supports your overall well-being. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you mentioned about um, self, you mentioned about harming, not in a harming way. Right. So would you say that, um, and correct me if I'm completely off course here, but is, is, um, eating disorders kind of related to self-harm? It can be absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It, it really, again, depends on, on why the person's using it to cope, mm -hmm. but a lot of people will talk about using it as a, a slow suicide that does come up a lot, mm -hmm. um, because they are just like, I don't, I don't want to be here. I'm struggling with being in the world. And it's a way to kind of like do something in, I mean, I don't believe it's passively, but I think it feels more passive right. um, than let's say taking your own life in, mm -hmm. in another form. Um, also, it can be a way though to, for some people to cause pain um, to themselves in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it can just be another, another way of, of pulling that piece forward. Mm -hmm. So is now, I guess that it's a, it's a hard topic to talk about, but what That's are the good. mortality rates of eating disorders in Canada or in Alberta even like is it higher than we would expect I think so yeah okay. it is actually the most um, deadly psychiatric disorder that you can wow. struggle with um, and usually the, the unfortunate part is it's we don't we don't label somebody dying from an eating disorder it will be complications for example okay. they develop something else or they take their own lives right um, but what they're struggling with at the time is an eating disorder mm -hmm. so I think the problem is, is we don't actually have statistics on that to right. say like this is the number but we know just because of the um level it does to the body like the level of damage it does to the body mm -hmm. um, and that's all eating disorders across the board and again i think because we still don't really fully identify eating disorders we don't talk about them as much i still think the numbers on everything are, are much lower than, right. than we are aware yeah yeah for sure
Um, and it's, uh, it's just so tragic, you know, our, it, it, I'm so glad that there's a facility like that you guys have, have opened up this side of things and to be so specific and so supportive. It sounds like I, I just, uh, it's amazing what you guys are doing. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. we just, it was, it was a pipe dream at one point for me and my um, founding partner, Dr. Amanda Stiller. Mm -hmm. um, and then after COVID happened, we were both working in our own private practices during COVID. And we just said the rates of eating disorders are going through the roof. Like we have to do something now. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of why we decided to open the center two years ago, because we just thought that we have to get the support out there. Yeah. And so do you think that COVID yeah. exacerbated that? Absolutely. Like so many other things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Mental health in general. Yeah. <laughs> and other things for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why was because people lost so much they lost. And especially we found, I mean, for everybody, but if we're talking about teens too, like they lost their social networks, they lost their sports teams, their school. Mm -hmm. um, so they were looking for something else to hang on to. Um, and for a lot of people that became an eating disorder. Also for so many people, we were stuck in our homes where there's an abundance of food Yeah, and dealing with all sorts of unknowns and stresses and a lot of people turn towards a lot of things to cope, but food was one of them. Right. Um, so a lot of binge eating also as a result of that, but just trying to find something to hang on to. Mm -hmm. So it's okay. So how does, I was reading on your Instagram page, which we'll give all the handles and stuff after, but um, OCD, how does OCD relate to eating disorders? That's a great question. <laughs> I'm speaking with my pen right now. <laughs> Um, so they're, they can be comorbid with, so lots of things can be comorbid with an eating disorder. Um, OCD we find in particular, um, again, I'm going to talk in generalization, but it seems to go more in line when somebody's struggling with anorexia, mm -hmm. just because it's that focus on rigidity, um, and having something again, that I can hang on to. So sometimes that's things outside of food or weight, but sometimes the OCD presents itself in the realm of food. Right. Um, it can be things from fears of contamination to mm -hmm fears around the way things are being prepared, the types of foods, it can be obsessions about body checking. Um, so looking at yourself in the mirror, pinching yourself to see like, is there any fat on my body? Um, Appearance-based kind of obsessions, but it can also just be like OCD in general. So hand washing, yeah. checking, those kinds of things. Yeah. And that's all from what I, my understanding of OCD is it's, you don't have control over other things in your life. So that's what you can control. Yes. The one phrase I always like to say um, that I think really fits for both, let's say, um, eating disorders and OCD is the question I always think people are asking themselves is, am I okay? Mm -hmm. Am I okay? Am I okay? And so we get caught up in that loop and we're trying to find ways. We can't actually ask the question. So we're trying to find ways to just be okay. So if I just keep checking this thing or I only eat these types of foods, I can be quote unquote okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you would really want to kind of highlight and, and leave the listeners with that, you know, especially leading into the holidays, kind of just a feeling of hope and, and yeah, I know that it, general question, but, oh, but yeah. Great. I just, I really feel there's so many people out there that are feeling isolated, alone, helpless, hopeless. And then we enter a defeat place or a resignation because it's like, I don't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. And what we want people to know is that there is support out there. There is a community of people who do understand mm -hmm. and you don't have to walk this alone. The holidays are going to be a particularly challenging time for any individual, but any family, because people want to have a good time at Christmas, right? That's yeah. the hope we're during the holiday season. And when we know we're, we're struggling with this or you have a loved one struggling, it can be so hard. Um, so knowing one, that there is support out there for you, but also try to, if you can find a way to 
offer any kind of like stability, comfort for the people around you so everyone can still participate and mm -hmm. have a good time in any way that works for everybody, it will help take some of that stress and overwhelm off of it. Yeah. Um, but also knowing that you can you can reach out to our center. There's other supports in Edmonton also. We have um, Edsna in Edmonton. We have the support um, through the U of A hospital. So there, there right. are other places to go. Right. And maybe I can throw those links in into this as well. Um, okay, I do ask all my all my um, guests this, but what is the last best thing you do every night before you go to bed? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I really like to take a moment just to reflect on my day mm -hmm. and just think about one thing that I can hang on to because some days could be really hard. Yeah. <laughs> one good thing that's happened, and just to really try to take in the joy of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the holidays, what is a is there a food or some sort of foods that would be helpful to have out for somebody suffering? Like, is it something that I guess it would again be different for everyone? You got it, right? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. So it's figuring out what is the safe food for the person around you, mm -hmm. and if there are certain types of trigger foods, is there a way to deal with that in a way that would be supportive of them? Right. And again, it's such an individual situation. Some people want those foods not removed per se, but maybe put out in certain kind of quantities or in a certain way. Um, but I think it's mostly just talking with your loved one and trying to figure out, hey, what can we do that's going to make this easier? Because it's not just easier for them, mm. it's easier for everybody then. Right. if that person is able to feel more comfortable and relaxed in that, then everyone's going to feel like they can let their guard down a little bit. Yeah. And, and enjoy the holiday season, yeah, exactly. right? As much as you can. And this year is particularly hard for a lot of yes. people, I think, with the, just the state of the world. So I'm sure you've you know, it, it brings up a lot of these things even more, magnifies it. 100% it does. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, Michelle. Thank this you. is, yeah, it's been a lovely conversation and just so important. Um, can Where can we find you? Where can we look you up? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we have social media and our website. So Alberta Wellness Center for Eating Disorders. Um, and the tag on Instagram is awesome. Yes, and I love <laughs> that. You can find. Um, we have three locations in Edmonton. So we are located um, in Ellerslie. We are located on the West End by Mayfield. And we have a downtown office also. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of, yeah. Oh, I should add, and Calgary. Awesome. And Calgary, Calgary as well. It's a very new program. So yes, okay. we also have support in Calgary. Absolutely. Nice. This is great. And um, if anybody has any questions or any anything that, yeah, just don't, you know, don't be afraid to reach no, out. Reach out to us. And as I mentioned, uh, Carrie, our office admin will answer all of your questions right. if you call in. Um, but we're here to answer anything, both me and, uh, me and Dr. Stiller. Okay, perfect. Well, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome. Thank okay. you. So, and do you offer um, these services online? Absolutely. So all of our practitioners um, operate both um, in person at any of our offices, but also virtually. Um, and those sessions are really up to people's um, individual kind of preferences and experiences. So it's really nice now, thanks to COVID, even though a lot of us were doing it before, that it's made it a lot more accessible. Mm -hmm. So we can provide services across Alberta. Right. So yeah, it is just Alberta for it's your just Alberta, clinic. Yeah. Now, can you recommend anything if across Canada that that people can turn to and, and look up for, for any support? Absolutely. So there are treatment programs all across Canada. Um, almost all of the hospitals have some type of inpatient treatment program. There are some um, private clinics also. There's Westwind, which operates um, out of Kelowna and I think Manitoba. Okay. Um, but there's others like that across Canada. It's just more going online and you can look at um, 
if you just Google kind of eating disorder clinics or eating disorder supports mm -hmm. in Canada, they'll be able to list those for you. Um, but it's really important, like we mentioned earlier, just to find whether it's a treatment center, if you're looking for just an individual practitioner, that you're really looking to see what is their experience and training in eating disorders. Right. Yeah. Just don't take someone's word for it that they work with eating disorders. Exactly. Do your research. Yes. Like anything else. Exactly. Yes. And get the best care possible, absolutely. which they would get with you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like you are a very calming it, it just, the presence and you can tell the heart that you have and the passion that you have for this. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. very much. So, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Carry On With Carry Podcast. Um, it's, it was such a great conversation that I had with Michelle and um, it's such an important topic heading into the holiday season um, for any family or um, individuals suffering with eating disorders and how to deal with it during this time of year um, is, is huge. And just remember to be kind and um, gracious to people and to one another. Um, you can give me a follow on Instagram at carry on with carry underscore podcast or on Facebook at carry on with carry podcast. I am now available on Amazon Music as well as Spotify. So if you feel compelled again to share and to follow, I would just love to spread the word and hopefully we can help just one more person at a time. <laughs>